COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Symptoms of this respiratory disease may include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. These symptoms may show up 2 to 14 days after exposure. If you are experiencing these symptoms and have come into contact or are in an area with an ongoing outbreak, please call a hotline and or consult with a physician. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y-L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M. For links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, John begins his story after graduating from college in 1985, when he took an intern position at Saturday Night Live. He worked for SNL for over 20 years. He eventually went on to work for Columbia Records and Warner Brothers Records, respectively. Later, he moved on to work for Disney until his semi-retirement in 2018. Join me as John weaves his story of working in the music industry for the majority of his life. He also discusses the change in the music business through the years. Here is John's story. I'm John Zonars. I have gone by the nickname Jay-Z from the age of five. Um, I was born in 1963 outside of Detroit. I grew up there in the 70s and I started playing guitar around the age of 15. And it was my, you know, it was my way to gain social access to the um, various kids that were going to public schools outside of Detroit at that time. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a little socially awkward, so the music was my gateway but I've always had a passion for it my entire life. I mean, I'm, I'm 56 now. I went to college not wanting to study, but to please my parents, thinking that I was gonna be a, a guitar player. And I wound up falling in love with academia about my junior year and wound up like really having a great college experience. I went to a small school outside of the, uh, it's actually right smack in the middle of Michigan between Ann Arbor and Kalamazoo called Albion College. Great experience for me, even though I was like a hippie and a guitar player and it was a very preppy school. 
it, it really had an effect on me. And I, I firmly believe that that liberal arts education has been a key factor in me being successful. Um, so cut to, I graduate at 20 years old and by a fluke, I get an internship on Saturday Night Live in the music department in, the, in September of 1985. So I was still, I had only graduated college three months before. And I really wasn't even looking for a job. I thought that it was gonna get me close to some musicians. But what happened was I kind of fell in love with the production staff. I fell in love with Lorne Michaels and the way he did things. Um, and I became one of their people. And um, despite the fact that that first season, which was 1985 to 86, I was not getting paid. I had no apartment. I slept on the 17th floor of 30 Rock where the SNL production offices are many nights. And consequently, the elder producers thought that I was this keen, earnest, early boy kid, because they'd come in at 7 a.m. and I'd be there. <laughs> they thought I was there, that I was coming in at 7 a.m. And uh, anyhow, so what I'm getting at is I fell in love with them they kind of fell in love with me. And at the time I was situated, the timing was just perfect for me to do this kind of work. And I wound up working with them for 18 years consecutively. Uh, and my job morphed a lot after my old boss, G.E. Smith left in 95, I became the guitar player for sketches. And I did a lot of live performing on the show with a lot of the cast members, Will Ferrell, Jimmy Fallon, um, to name a few, and a lot of hosts. From there, when it finally came time for me to leave, which was, was a heartbreaking decision, but I felt like I needed some sort of a change because I went there directly from college, man. And it was, it was such a great family. It was really hard to leave, but I was lucky enough to reinvent my career and I worked exclusively for Columbia Records and Warner Brothers Records and a number of independent artists like Cindy Lauper. Columbia artists were Beyonce and John Mayer and a lot of their other artists that were sort of uh, not as big of a push like Jessica Simpson and System of Down. Basically all the five for fighting, John Androsic, for Warner Brothers, it was like Michael Buble, Josh Groban. I did a lot of work with. I love Josh, and it was great for me as as a production guy when I'm mixing a TV performance to have a vocal instrument like that to play with in production. It's amazing. And at the same time, I started working for Hollywood Records. I had some friends there at the Disney Music Group, and I was helping Hilary Duff. And then I got knee deep in what was called high school musical with the Disney music group. And after that experience, I got hired by uh, Ken Bont and uh, Abby Conowich, but really it was Bob Cavallo senior. who was the chairman, you know, who I, that sealed the deal. When I met with him, he's a legend. His son runs Warner brothers. People confuse them. 
It's Bob Cavallo Sr. and Rob Cavallo is the Warner Brothers guy, his son. So that was 2006. I made a deal with them and I worked with them until 2018. And I was responsible for a lot of interesting Disney uh, successes like Jonas Brothers and Miley Cyrus, and Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez. And, and when I say I was responsible, I, I, I mean that I was in, uh, instrumental in, you know, in one way or another with them. Um, and worked very closely, you know, with them. And so I left the music group as a result of the Fox merger, which happened, which was an interesting little piece of, you know, media uh, frenzy. But I have nothing but good things to say about Disney and the guys that still work there. And they treated me really well. It was all amicable and I got a nice package um, or a moderate package, I should say but it's more important for me to keep those relationships and, and to have the, the pedigree of being a Disney retiree. Even though I'm only 56, I got like the retirement. Coincidentally, today, Disney's in the news. A lot of people have like, you know, have these experiences at Disney and they mock it and they say, oh, Disney fuck me over or this or that. But I have nothing but great things to say about the company. I thought that, and for me being a fucking hippie from the 60s, you know, having a corporate gig at the music group, there couldn't have been a more, uh, more odd fit. But it was a great experience, man apart from how I started to not enjoy music. Okay, but that's it, man. Now I live in Studio City. I got a sweet MD gig. I'm working with a, a very famous woman who's about to put a record out in the spring. And we're putting a band together and it's really exciting. And I'm going at my own pace without anybody looking over my shoulders. So I'm a lucky cat. I never minted. I'm not a millionaire. I got credit card debt but I have been really successful and my resume kind of speaks to that, you know, having 20 consecutive years with Lorne Michaels and SNL and every other show he did in between. And a couple of other, uh, I wrote music for Ben Stiller back in the fucking late eighties, early nineties. We did a show on MTV and then on Fox. I was his music director and composer. Um, as you know, before he broke out, we were buddies. He was kind of like, yeah, I kind of looked out for him the first couple of years. I remember riding my motorcycle through Manhattan with him on the back to an MTV meeting. Also a show called Exit 57, which was on Comedy Central. Um, it featured a young Stephen Colbert and a young Amy Sedaris before the whole Strangers with Candy thing but same team basically as strangers with candy and upright citizens brigade and uh again so i just wanted to mention those last two credits those are the one things you know the few a couple things that stick out in my mind that are are um creative accomplishments that i'm proud of and uh that's it brother i'm here in studio city at our house that we've had for 14 years. It's an awesome place to live. And I don't mind the California weather this time of year. Feels like autumn. That's it, my man. Let's go back some. Let's go back to your Saturday Night Live days. 
Okay. Now I remember when Saturday Night Live. I'm 58, so I was at the age that we gathered on yeah, Saturdays sure. with my right friends on. and everything, and we would drink and and you know pretty much get drunk and watch Saturday Night Live, and that was just yeah, yeah, an sure. experience. Uh, were you there with the Sinead O'Connor episode? Uh, well, I actually I was. Yeah, that was uh, well into my uh, my my tenure. So, were you playing for? you were doing the music at that time that at that time well i mean if it was before 95 then no and and just to be clear i was not playing with the house band i was being what was called basically a music producer for the guest band and i also did uh, coordinating production for the house band but I never played with the house band. Oh, okay. I played with with cast members and um, the hosts for comedic sketches. So, in other words, I was either in a set doing a sketch, playing, or off camera playing an acoustic guitar while someone faked it and sang. Well, that's interesting. How does that work exactly? I, well, I that's mean, a process a lot. that we call. It's called shadowing and it's a comedic thing. It's like a timing thing. You have to be really good. You have to have a good relationship with the other person you're working with. And basically what I would do is I would just sit there uh, uh, and watch like Will Ferrell, for example. I would watch him and see when he was about ready to start fake strumming. And then I would start strumming. And if he was gonna make a pause, I'd stop. And um, we would get into a thing where it was like, he didn't even have to think about it. All he had to think about was singing, but it looked like he was playing guitar. It's called shadowing. I, I did it with David Duchovny in his opening monologue. I played a Jimmy Page song because he was there as the musical guest. I did it with Garth Brooks. I did it with uh, uh, Chris Kattan, Jimmy Fallon and I had a had a sketch where I was actually in the sketch playing and I was the music director for the, I was called the Antonio Banderas show. It was a Chris Kattan thing. I mean, it's funny that you bring that up because that is actually my favorite part of my whole experience with them. It was doing that. It was so much fun, but there's a lot of other shit that I did. And speaking to Sinead O'Connor, yeah, I was there and I was intricately involved, but I was played. Okay, I, 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 some the, this guy, the manager, or it was Sinead herself. You know, the word, the the verdict was never returned on whether or not Steve Fagnoli, that was uh, her manager at the time. I can't remember the name of the company, but his name was Steve Fagnoli. He passed away, unfortunately, not too long after that, like ten years after that. And he maintained to his uh, took it to his death that he didn't know. I basically, you know, because she was singing this song about child abuse, I helped her block it out with the director so that at the end of the song, it was War by Bob Marley, which is, um, it's not really about war, it's about child abuse. And she was supposed to hold up a photo of a child and say, this is who we have to protect, right? So we blocked that at the dress rehearsal that night. You know, we do a dress, they do a dress rehearsal uh, from like seven to 10. 
and uh, and then they then they reorder and cut things and make the live show and do it live. So during that dress rehearsal, we blocked that with with the director, so he was ready to cut, you know, to zoom in at the end. And she pulls out a picture of the Pope, and you know, of course, at the time, everyone was like, "Oh my God, blasphemy." Whatever, and Lauren ran into the control room. I was right behind him, and he was like, "Don't cue applause," which was, I think, one of the most brilliant things he ever did. I what I have, what I'm trying to say is that at that time I had no understanding or no, um, I couldn't even conceive as to why somebody would do something like that. But then when you find out about all the shit that's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And the priests that are shuffled around the the world to hide the the transgressions they've done, and the children, you know, that are forever scarred by those experiences. I have a much different view towards what she did now. Okay,、um, I just had to say that. That is that's interesting.、Um, let's go ahead and move to your Disney career now. Okay. What what was your or what can you pinpoint as the ultimate in your career with them?、Uh, a time or a, a movie or whatever it was that you just felt like, man, this is fantastic. Well, I think that's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, this might not have the most、uh, creative integrity attached to it, but I was, you know, we were really, really. That whole music group was very responsible for the Jonas Brothers becoming who they are, and they have this film out now,、uh, which is a, actually a very, very good film. I enjoyed it, and I love the guys. But they didn't give Disney much credit. They kind of talked about Columbia Records, but the truth is, Columbia Records dropped them, and then we helped develop them. And then they went back to Columbia after Nick、uh, had his solo career. But I will tell you, the consummate, consummate event was having them booked on SNL and me coming in as the record label executive. Or I can speak freely, right? Oh yeah, yeah. The record label dick. That's what we used to call them, right? So here I am, twenty years, fifteen years later, coming back as the artist development executive for the band who's booked on the show. So all the people I used to work with had to please me, you know. And that wasn't no, it wasn't like that. They didn't have to please me, but it was like you know, it was like coming back to your college and being the you know the BMOC, big man on campus. So that was, and I did it with Demi Lovato too, with the same music group. That was again a high point. Apart from that, there are a few artists that I got really close to: Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. They were a non-Disney brand rock, you know, touring jam group. All the work I did with Bob Cavallo and John Lynn. Uh, who was the A and R guy, and all the stuff that we did with Miley and Selena, Vanessa Hutchins, all these all these kids, by the way, are actually really good singers, and they care deeply about what they do. So, if people are like searching them and thinking that they're, 
you know, bullshit or somehow manufactured. That's not the case. All, all of these um, kids that I'm talking about, where they're not kids anymore, but uh, they all had a lot of integrity and a lot of like interest in music and good instincts. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to dig through, especially when you're dealing with a teenager that doesn't have a normal life, you know? It's hard to uncover the potential but uh, I never really had a problem with it. And maybe that stems from the fact that they had acting careers before that, or, you know, they were kind of understanding of the whole uh, process um, from a different perspective, not musical. So I gotta say overall, you know, the second answer, besides going back to SNL and tromping in with my expense account, you know, which was fucking, I took my, my old boss out for like a $600 dinner, you know, at the restaurant I used to go to. That was a fucking high point, man. But also the fact that working with those, those kids and, or when they were kids and seeing them develop and um, being, um, establishing trust with them, that's probably the, the greatest reward. It's like being a teacher, basically. What are some low points in your life, um, either well, at Saturday Night Live or Disney or even? Well, personal? there were, jeez, okay. Uh, my father died suddenly at 94. I mean, in 1994 at 64 years old, completely took it, uh, took us all by surprise. I'm the only male in an all Greek, family with two older sisters so all of a sudden i was kind of the man in the family and i was not prepared at all i was partying too much and i spent a year partying even harder and then the death the the whole thing hit me a year later and i had a depressive episode in my adult life one of two that i've had and um, I'll, I'm, I talked about it, I'm transparent about it because I believe that the, my journey could help other people, you know, and I don't need to say anything more than that. I found uh, some really great therapy exercises uh, instead of drug therapy, and that helped me through those, but I did experience some major depression a couple of times and had to stop working for a brief period uh, I won't really get into that more anymore unless you want me to. No, that's okay. Um, I can I can relate. Yeah. I I'm bipolar, so I'm I, I can, okay. I can tell you I've right. experienced some pretty pretty deep lows, uh, but it's um, I know it's difficult to talk about sometimes. Uh, I like to be open uh, with my uh, diagnosis because I think more people who talk about it, the less stigma there is, and especially now yeah. with uh, with a lot of the mass shootings the first thing they say is mental illness mental illness and i yeah. saw a thing on facebook it was a meme and it was something like you know in the united states it's all mental illness but in other countries that have as much mental illness as we have here you don't see all those mass shootings so it, it's just it's frustrating yeah. but yeah go ahead oh it's all right man it's just uh i think that the more awareness about it is it, the better um, and but the stigma is still there and people still don't 
fully understand that it is an illness. I mean, they consider it different than, say, cancer or diabetes, you know? And there's a certain amount of blame and shame that people who experience these illnesses have to go through because people just say, oh, well, you know what? He was just depressed. He couldn't get out of bed. So, you know, poor fucking guy, fuck off. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm through with you or you did this. And then so this is your fault. But it's really an illness, you know? That's the thing that gets me. And I don't mind talking about it, but I don't want that to be the focus of what we're discussing now. Another really low point was after playing in like a series of original bands as a lead guitar player, I finally found my writing niche and I wrote a shit ton of songs. I had a publishing deal with John Tita at Warner Chapel and I used the money I got from the advance to do my own record in 1994. And I had 14 songs on there. I wrote the music and the words for, and I had arranged a band and cut the whole thing live with acoustic instruments, cello, upright bass. And I thought I was gonna become, you know, rich and famous and play music for the rest of my life. And it uh, came out of the gate with flying colors. It stumbled, took a downward turn the band broke up, I was heartbroken. Then we got back together and got a deal in Germany, oddly enough, but it never worked out. And that was a huge thing for me um, in terms of where I thought I was gonna be in my life by the time I was 40. You know, there was no chance of me being a rock star. Um, if I didn't have the gig on SNL where I was playing live on TV, I probably would have dug deeper into it, maybe, and become more successful, but that satisfied me. So my focus went away from that. I just gotta say, it's like when you have a dream like that, there's, it's, there's never, if it's gonna end, it's because you decide to end it, okay? And so I don't blame other people for that. I don't hold a grudge against anyone. It's something that I did at that time, you know, that prevented me from becoming a rock star and having a great uh, singer-songwriter career. And I own that now, and I'm at peace with it, and now music's flowing through me again at 56. So go figure. He asked me about my low, low points, which I think is actually a great interviewing technique. I, I, I appreciate the way that you've been so far because you, you really listen. You don't try to interrupt or talk over me or anything. And um, But I kind of feel like our flow is one-sided. I've been doing all the talking. Well, that's what it my... Rhythm. That's what my uh, show is about. It's a true storytelling podcast. And I, yep. try to, I try to stay back and listen to what my guest is saying. Uh, I try to talk as little as possible. I, I do a lot of editing and I'll cut myself out, but you know, I want to make my guests comfortable. So, sure. you know, so I, I just try to, you know, move the interview along if I can. Um, Please, man. I'm at, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I'm Kyle. This is Steven. Together we host a show called Boar Meets World. Tell them what we cover on Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World. But that's not all, is it? No. Now we cover 
life experiences. Ours. Oh, son of a <laughs> All right, just check out the show, please. We really, <laughs> we really need it. Okay, we need a win. Just check us out. We talk about the show Boy Meets World. Each episode of our show, we run parallel for an episode of Boy Meets World where we will examine the show. That's way too much. What happens, you know, our life, how it relates to it, experiences. I can't believe you're still recording. I am recording this. <laughs> Check it out, guys. You'll get some hilarious stories from me and Steven from our childhood. You'll get a great... <laughs> ah, I lost it. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. I'm Swanson, host of the TV Tuners podcast. Every week on TV Tuners, me and my co-host, Keo Rain, Swanson, I need water. And Stairmaster, <laughs> review the latest in TV and discuss news, trailers, and even find time to play some fun games. Right now, we're working overtime to cram as much TV knowledge into our brains as possible. Isn't that right, guys? Swanson, we've been here for 24 hours. We need to get out of here. Not until you answer who Norm is. He's Fraser's brother. Wrong. You get the shock. <gasps> Check out TV Tales, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or any of the podcatchers of your choice. You said before we talked, uh, or before I started recording, that uh, you've dabbled in other artistic uh, endeavors. Do you want to talk about anything? Uh, I got some writing projects that I'm doing. I wrote a musical and I'm trying to um, help with the screenplay treatment now. I like to write short stories. I only published one, um, but I've been doing more of that lately. Um, I love to work with my hands. I'm not like an artist painter or sculptor or anything like that but art is very much part of my life my father was a very successful interior designer he went to a really great school with a bunch of artists and that was in bloomfield hills michigan cranbrook academy of art so all my life growing up i was surrounded by these um, artistically inclined people and my mom was an art dealer my oldest sister is very successful um, staff. Uh, she's basically the head of the entire Asian department at Christie's. So art and the appreciation of, of fine objects. I have a few collections. I collect old books and certain silver and certain pottery. I consider those creative endeavors, even though you're, you know, you don't want to be me when you're moving. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I wonder about that myself. I collect local yeah. artists. You know, I buy as much as I can from local artists. I'm a painter and sculptor as well, uh, but I oh, haven't cool. done anything in a while. Um, That's awesome. So podcast is kind of my my third wind, I guess. Um, I'm All right. more into that, but it's good to, you know, I always enjoy talking to other people who are into art or collect I, I love pottery as well that's something i like to collect uh obsessively really yes i have an extensive roseville collection do you know about oh yeah roseville? yes yes yeah i'm Holy not shit, I'm, but i'm more into collecting local peoples but uh i just yeah. you know it's just something i yeah. i guess it's tactile you know with the, the pottery you can pick it up and hold it and look yeah. at it i want to tell you a funny little quick little story about roseville 
because my mom was really into it. And at growing up every Christmas, my father would buy her a piece, right? So it, I kind of grew up around it. And right about the time that after he passed away and I had the um, depression, I had been uh, doing a lot of drugs. Right? I was taking some cocaine and things that I never did. Okay, I was not a, a drunk or anything. Um, but then I got unhinged that year after my dad died. And I was around a lot of people that had that drug. And uh, I freely admit that I did it extensively for about a year. And then when I quit, the way I quit, instead of going to AA, was every time I wanted to go cop, I went online and I bought a piece of Roseville. And about six months later, my apartment was full of fucking Rosevilles <laughs> that I paid way too much money for and have subsequently given away as gifts, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of funny, eh? But at least you weren't spending your money on drugs. So that's a good thing. Yeah, what I'm saying is sometimes the answer to an addiction problem is not necessarily cutting yourself off but substituting something for it but as long as you realize that you're just changing an addiction okay you know i i became addicted to buying roseville online and it happened to be the period of time where roseville was the most expensive it's ever been it's come down way a lot like almost 50 percent yeah that 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 surprises me the way art can go up and down in such a short time. Yeah, well, when you're dealing with vintage stuff, it's just it all has to do with what what is the surplus, you know, how much is out there. Right, and the the uh, you know the, the market yeah. for what's needed and what people yeah. are looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a stock, you know, the stock gets hot and then it goes up and then it goes down. You said you dabbled in acting. Uh, was it theater or movies or? I was a Broadway, uh, I was what they called a theater fag. I don't mean anything against homosexuals. I have some of my best friends are, are gay and I'm completely open. But that's what they called me in high school in the 70s, right? Because I was in all the plays and I sang and, and acted in plays. I did some TV shows around Detroit as an actor. I never wanted to become an actor. It was just something that I did to kind of be social. But I was good at it. And I did my crowning achievement or my swan song was, believe it or not, when, I, when Charlie Sheen hosted the show, SNL, I was cast as a drug dealer in the opening monologue. And I had six lines, basically standing up in the audience and you know how the audience members sometimes ask the guest host during the opening monologue to ask them a question. Yeah. You ever notice that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's usually an indication that the, the whoever the guest host is, isn't good at stand-up comedy, right? You get a stand-up comic up there like fucking, you know, Jim Carrey or De Dennis Miller or somebody, they can do the monologue fine. But if you get an actor like Pierce Brosnan or, you know, Martin Sheen, who's never really done stand-up, they 
sometimes go to the oh the audience question routine right so one girl gets up and tells him that she's a hooker and how much would he pay <laughs> and somebody gets up and says something else and then i get up and i'm like hey charlie want to buy some weed and then he's like no nah, i don't like weed and then i pull out a bag of cocaine and i'm like hey how about this and then i wind up selling it to tracy morgan <laughs> so yeah i was actually a principal that night a principal after contract that's the highest after a classification on SNL. Let, let me ask you then, given the current situation with music, CDs are not popular now and people get or have more access to music free, basically. They're still in and off the internet. How has that affected the music industry? Uh, it, it's devastation, man. The business model has imploded. It's funny because I had lunch with a friend of mine who's uh, still an executive uh, at Disney today. And we were talking about it. And it had been such a long time since I'd actually sat and talked to somebody who's actually in the trenches. And the analogy that he drew was like, it's like fucking water. Kids nowadays tapping into music it's like fucking turning the faucet on. That's how easy it is. And they don't think about albums and, you know, they all they think about is shuffle. The idea of them listening to 10 songs by the same artist in a row is completely foreign to them. You know, you and I grew up where when a record came out that we were waiting for, we listened to it start to finish, man. And it was the body of work that moved us, right? It was the sequence of the songs and the relationship of the chord changes and the writing. Okay, all of that artistry is gone. And the album okay? covers. Yeah, yeah, even the artwork, yeah, right. What about those fold-out pages you got, like, with the photos, right? And the lyrics. Um, yeah, yeah. And just to own that fucking record, right? And the physicality of it, okay? But more importantly than that, there's a basic fundamental about the business model that a lot of people don't realize why they're, they're uh, floundering so much. And that is the, the, the initial principle, I feel, I feel like the predominant principle in the business model of the traditional record label is getting the artist in debt to you. In other words, they sign an artist, they take their publishing, they give them 150 grand to go to fucking Ireland and record a record in a castle, right? They don't need to do that because the artist needs artistic inspiration it's designed to run up a bill and after that they bill the artist 150 grand to press 500,000 LPs and after that they bill the artist to ship those LPs all over the world okay so before you know it the artist is in debt to the record label for 350 grand and they're not going to make a fucking dime until they recoup that cost, right? 
And so, in other words, the, the record label controlled the artist. I mean, you've heard about all the horror stories, Tom Petty, Prince, George Michael. These guys sued their record labels for the bogus contracts they got into. It was bullshit. It was tantamount to some fucking guy giving a blues-like player, like, well, Chuck Berry was always too smart for that, but, you know, here's a Cadillac, right? They give him a Cadillac instead of paying him. And it's all because they wanted to control the art. Now, let's look back at those three things, okay? The advance to do the recording. Any kid today can put a Pro Tools studio together and download production expertise from the best producers and make a record in a week, okay? Or make an EP or just a single, right? with the production tools, the digital tools that are available today, okay? So that's number one. You don't need that advance. You don't need to fly to London and, and record at Abbey Road. Number two, there's no physical copy. Number three, there's no distribution. They put their shit up on YouTube. The playing field is equal. There's no competition between labels because all these kids are out there posting their shit on their own. So where the hell's the record label in all this? All they got is touring and manufacturing, meaning like, um, uh, you know, t-shirts and shit, merch, merchandising, touring and merchandising and licensing, you know, soundtracks, classic rock catalogs, right? Disney Music Group bought the Queen catalog 30 years ago or something right made them no money made them no money bohemian rhapsody comes along it's the only valid film out there about a band i feel that's accurate that it's worth its salt you know everybody and their brother is putting you know madonna has one elton john did rocket man molly crew everybody's doing these movies now right but nothing holds a candle to bohemian rhapsody and they made, the only reason why that music group was not in the red this year is because of that catalog. And that's licensing. So that is, the, that and touring, those are the only two things that record labels have. And artists don't need them for that either. When I work with a young kid, somebody who's like a friend, uh, the son or the niece of a friend, and I see they have talent, and I feel like I could help them. Um, one of the first things I say is you don't need a record deal. And it's ironic for me to admit that because my entire fucking career, all I wanted was a sweet fucking record deal like that. I thought that was the answer to all my dreams. But uh, as it turns out, it's irrelevant now. So, as I said, the business model has imploded for those three principal reasons. Um, and then you also, if you get into the whole marketing side of it, you see that there are guys that are so set in their ways, like they still want to buy billboards on Sunset Boulevard, right? And the 25-year-old social media whiz kid 
who now is running half the fucking show, says that doesn't mean shit. You know, put it into this, you know,、um, platform. You know, let's do a deal with Spotify or Hulu or、um, Shazam or I don't know. I don't even keep track of that shit. But those, you know,、um, those guys, some of them are still there. Okay, and if there's anything, any suggestion or recommendation that people would would pay attention to from me, is that still, you know, take into account those guys. Take into those, take into account that guy that wants to buy the billboard, okay? Because he's got a hell of a lot more experience than some twenty-five-year-old social media whiz kid. I was just thinking as you were talking, when I was growing up, labels were a big deal to me. That's how I discovered、mm-hmm. new music.、Um, I got really、Absolutely, got into four AD. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, Casablanca, A and M. Come on. But that's how you would discover like, new music. You know why? It's why you know why is because of the LP with the logo in the mid, you know,、uh, at the center of the record. That's why we knew the labels. It was branding before branding. It was a word. Well, I miss those days. I think my favorite might have been A and M, Cat Stevens, Carol King, Herb Albert, you know, Tijuana Brass, The Police. That always seemed like a really cool record、uh, label. Warner Brothers, of course, you couldn't go wrong there. Let me ask you something else. Let's go to a different subject. You've lived on、sure. both both the、uh, East Coast and the West Coast. Now, do you consider、yeah. yourself a West Coast kid, or you kind of fluctuate? Absolutely not. I'll never be a pure West Coaster. And I will tell you this: that. The first ten years or fifteen years、um, of living in New York City was probably the best part of time in my life. After college, moving there at twenty years old from Detroit or from a suburb of Detroit, it was、uh, my mind was like a sponge, and New York was like a fucking open book、um, and just full of energy and full of authentic people that were so driven. And focused, I was what we called a New York snob. I thought people from LA were fake and cheap, and I didn't even want to travel to LA. I had to come out here for work a few times, and scoffed at the idea of living here.、Um, it wasn't until three years after leaving SNL, and I had been flying out here to work on a lot of TV shows outside of SNL. That I started to like LA, but the real reason why we planted roots here, my wife and I, we were together for 20 years. So we lived in a nice one bedroom in Manhattan for a while, and then before we got married, or right around after we got married, actually, we were going to buy an apartment,、uh, in a nice brownstone. Um, and we compared it to LA, and we found a nice house in Studio City, a, a house with a pool and a yard. I just, to me, it was a no-brainer. It's like it didn't really, for me, it didn't matter that it was LA or that it was、uh, changing cities. I just wanted a fucking house as opposed to a, an apartment. 
in a building where I had to worry about all the other people living next door, you know? Co-ops and condos in Manhattan can be a nightmare. Plus you're getting, you know, one, um, you're getting 40% of the square footage, if not 20% for the same amount of money. And so I adapted to the city because of the fact that the living conditions were more amenable. Now, having said that, I don't regret it. And I did become an LA guy, okay? When I got out here, first car I bought was a Toyota Matrix, right? Three years later, I'm driving a BMW. Why? Because you gotta have a fucking good car in LA, right? Now, I am not a fucking LA guy, but I, succumbed to that um partially because i love the engineering and partially because there had been instances where i was at a valet with a very high powered artist or executive and they pull up a fucking toyota matrix you know which is a great car by the way and then i had the same experience you know three years later when my um 328i comes around I, you know, it, it, those little things, uh, you know, the fact that you go out for dinner in LA and your waiter is always an actor and they, they're like auditioning for you. It's like, I have this funny joke that I do with my friend. It's like, you know, uh, one thing that always drives me crazy is you're driving in LA, right? And you're at a stoplight and people are walking across the street because they have the right of way, right? They walk so fucking slow it's like you're sitting there you're watching these people and they're just like a turtle right new yorkers when they're crossing the street they're practically fucking sprinting <laughs> for <Okay>. their lives <laughs> yeah yeah right but so i have this joke it's like you know why they they're going so slow across the street because they're auditioning they think the peace people in the car looking through them at the windshield is going to cast them or discover them. Yeah, it's always fascinating to me the the number of actors who have been on game shows looking looking to have that visual out there so they'll have something to say, look, this is me. Well, and you know, I mean, it's just also there's just a lot of people. I think that people go to New York with dreams just like they go to LA with dreams. But I think the people that survive in New York and become New Yorkers have a different ethic, a different work ethic. Um, I think the people in LA are just a little less driven, less focused, less, not less driven, possibly less focused. Um, but I just feel like it's kind of a different ideology. You know, whereas, and I don't mean to go to that stereotype of like the, you know, the, the beat, the surf stoner surfer, you know, Jeff Spicoli from uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I don't mean to go to that. I think that that is a stereotype and that's not indicative of LA people, but there are definitely you know a lot of people in la that are sort of trying to buy their way in or fake their way in um and when i say fake their way in 
I don't, I want to, I want to just um, quantify that because I think it's okay to fake your way in if you've got the goods. Okay. But if you fake your way in and you don't have the goods, then you, that's bullshit. Okay. And I think there are more people like that out here than there are in New York. You know, it's a, we, I used to call the smokescreen theory. If I was getting into a gig, like a live concert in, in Central Park, you know, for Laurel Michaels and Paul Simon, and I thought that it was beyond my ability, I would go in and fake it and throw up the smoke. And by the time the smoke settled, I knew what I was doing because I had the goods, right? I think that people in LA will fake their way in and then not have the goods to back it up more so than people in New York. This is Michael. Guess what I have done? I've taken the plunge and started a Patreon account. Why? Because producing a podcast can be quite costly. And frankly, I need the help paying all the fees for things like my domain, website, podcast hosting, Zoom, and other costs. Please consider helping me out with these expenses by committing to one of the pay tiers on my Patreon account. Just go to patreon.com slash in a city like yours. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot c-o-m slash i-n-a-c-i-t-y l-i-k-e-y-o-u-r-s all one word and pledge if you do i'll be sure to give you a shout out on this podcast thank you <laughs>